0: Hello everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today we'll be talking with John Bew about his new biography of the 20th century British Prime Minister Clement Attlee, entitled Citizen Clem, A Biography of Attlee. John, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mark. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself.
1: Yeah, I am a professor in history and foreign policy at the War Studies Department in King's College London, which is a kind of a unique department of its kind, which studies um, the rise and fall of nations, war in all its form, including peace, um, which is often a forgotten part of the equation. Uh, And I'm a historian primarily, even though I talk about contemporary foreign policy. So the book um, for which most people will know me in this area is a a book I wrote a number of years ago, a biography of Lord Castlereagh, who was Britain's uh, greatest foreign secretary at the time of the Napoleonic Wars. Um, I've also written on Realpolitik, a a history of uh, an idea, really the idea of Realpolitik, which has some contemporary resonances. And um, Clement Attlee is is my most recent, uh, my fifth book in in total. Um, And in that, I would kind of return to the biographical form, um, which I've enjoyed doing. I think it might be my last biography, but it's it's my second biography. Um, And uh, yeah, it's
0: been fun. (laughs) What led you to uh, write a biography? Because... Clement Attlee is not necessarily a figure that is often associated with foreign policy uh, in in, in the minds of of many people. He's much more associated with the uh, wartime government of of the Second World War and then, uh, of course, the the, the post-war government.
1: Yeah, well, one of the the things that really attracted me to Attlee is this undercooked um, side of the equation when it comes to Attlee and a misunderstood side of the equation. He's very much in some people's eyes a domestic prime minister. He's a British prime minister from 1945 to 1951. A huge influential in domestic uh, politics terms and we can go into that. But actually the Attlee that I talk about is an Attlee shaped by two world wars. The first which he fought in as a volunteer um, joining um, uh, when he uh, beyond the age in which he was required to uh, as a construct, actually uh, fiddling the rules so he could go join and fight it for as a patriotic endeavor in the first world war, and someone who's absolutely critical to the second world war as the deputy to Churchill um, after nineteen forty um, absolutely critical and under underappreciated figure in the war effort, but actually a lot of the book is really about at least Um, foreign policy as prime minister from 1945. Now, in that, he had a very close relationship with Ernest Bevan, who's a figure known uh, to a lot of Americans. Uh, But Attlee was hugely involved in British foreign policy. He, more than any other individual in British history, is a man who Brings an end to the British Empire and aims to change it from an empire into a Commonwealth. He grants independence to India, Burma, and Ceylon. He's accused of scuttling elsewhere, and Churchill's famous phrase from other portions of the Empire um, in Persia, in Palestine, for example. So foreign policy really looms large in everything he does. So I say right from the First World War through the 20s and the 30s, in which. He visits um, uh, Soviet Russia, in which he talks about Hitler and Mussolini extensively um, right through to I say the end of the British Empire and the early cold war it 's a huge theme of the book
0: mm-hmm. one of the things that uh, I noticed when I was reading the book is and this is something that is you know obvious in the, in the title of this edition uh, but is uh, comes up again when you 're talking about his service, particularly with the first world war, which is this notion of how Clement Attlee saw himself as a citizen and and, and how he, you know, that was, you see that as integral to his identity.
1: Absolutely. And this is a kind of another thing that I think has been slightly underappreciated. And partly it's because for previous generations of historians and for many of those in Attlee's era, the idea of citizenship rights and responsibilities, the duties you have to your nation, as well as the. the the responsibilities your nation has to you, to paraphrase a great American phrase, um, (laughs) will presume to be a little bit more um, accepted, established, um, unspectacular. And one thing we've seen, certainly, and this is a big theme in contemporary British politics, but I actually think it has a a resonance in, in the United States as well, is the kind of slightly tarnishing and the undermining of the kind of core notion of citizenship and the patriotism that sits alongside citizenship. And Attlee was someone who very much talked about uh, both responsibilities and rights. So he thought in the First World War it was his responsibility to sign up and fight for his country. One of the reasons why, which which drove him into national politics after 1918 is that he thought that the flip side of that, the rights due to those citizens who'd fought for Britain in the war, had not been fully respected. And the 20s and the 30s, in these difficult times of economic hardship, Attlee basically thought, well, you have people willing to sacrifice themselves for the nation, and yet the state that the nation represents hadn't really delivered on their side of the bargain. So again, you know, for an American audience, I describe Atlee's government very much as the British version of the New Deal, a new deal between the state and its citizens. And I think that goes to the core of everything that Atlee did, both in the domestic arena, but also in terms of
0: foreign policy. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that uh, also makes Atlee such an interesting figure is, uh, which on the one hand is, completely understandable given what you described, and yet in other ways on on the surface so uh, unusual is his background, which is that he is this British citizen who has this concept, and yet he comes from not uh, the upper class, but from a privileged background and and, and someone who doesn't necessarily seem at at first uh, glance to be the person who's going to someday become this incredibly successful prime minister for the Labour Party. I was wondering if you could speak to a bit about that background and 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 who his uh you know his family and and uh and his early uh his early upbringing. I think that's really the most fascinating side of Attlee because there's
1: two things that go on with Attlee from his early upbringing, his childhood, through to his later political career, and one could be characterised as almost revolutionary the transformation he goes through. Let's not forget that he is a socialist and that cannot be washed out of the equation, who's um, emerged from a, a conservative background. And yet the second thing that I hope to come to over the course of my re- remarks, and I think it is also important for understanding Attlee, is a kind of a core sense of consistency. So while his position changes and his stance on the political spectrum moves from right, to left, it's for the same reasons that Attlee um, first moved into public life. There's a core consistency in one aspect is citizenship and one aspect is patriotism. So what, what do I, I mean by that? Attlee's born in the late Victorian era into a broadly conservative family, a wealthy family. His father's a very successful lawyer a very Christian family, and a classic establishment family in Putney, which is a lovely, um, still to this day, very wealthy suburb in southwest London. His schooling reflects his social status. So very interestingly, Attlee goes to Halebury College, which is described by uh, some of the time as slightly like Eton, the famous elite school, just a slightly less less expensive than Eton. Um, and that really sort of captures the athletes, upwardly mobile, uh, bourgeois, upwardly mobile, but with lots of connections um, with the aristocracy and the ruling classes. And what's really interesting about Halebury is that Halebury is the most imperialist school in the whole of the British Isles. Its established purpose is to train its students for service. In the name of the British Empire, and that is the milieu which Atlee grows up grows up in, and he describes being a young schoolboy getting canned by his schoolmaster for over vigorously celebrating British imperial victories in South Africa. I mean, he's a hardcore imperialist. The pride at looking at those famous maps of the British Empire, in which. Uh, of 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 the globe in which a quarter of it is covered in the pink of the British Empire. He grows up in this environment, in this milieu, and it seems the most natural thing for him to be a strong loyalist, an imperialist, and someone who takes great pride in this exceptional, massive, expansive empire, the likes of which the world has never seen. So Atlee believes in that to his core. And even though he brings an empire, the, the empire to the end, he still has a sort of sense of circularity and and attachment to that original mission. And yet what happens is this, as I say, this revolution. And it is that Attlee, partly out of loyalty to his old school, partly out of loyalty to his younger brother, one evening takes a train from Putney, this salubrious, wealthy suburb, right through the center of the city, and he takes it on to the east end of London. And the reason why he's going to the east end of London is that his school runs a kind of a, a territorial army a training camp in a slum area of East London, which is supposed to teach the boys in that area discipline, um, how to clean rifles, how eventually to serve the British Empire. So it's a it's a it's a kind of a mini version of Halebury, but for the working classes in in, in East London. But when Attlee goes there, he's absolutely shocked at the extent of poverty in East London. And let me just give you an indication of that. So on the one hand, the British Empire is the greatest thing the world has ever seen, if you're a, if you're a British public schoolboy. And yet, at the heart of the imperial metropolis, in East London in particular, there are slum conditions, late Victorian slum conditions, the conditions that Dickens, of course, made famous in, in books like Oliver Twist or A Tale of Two Cities, which are worse than anything the world has ever seen, in which dysentery, in which um, uh, cholera, other, other diseases are rife, in which you have barefoot children wandering the streets, orphans, poor houses. There's no trade union representation, because a lot of the men have casual work down at the docks. There's a cocaine ep- epidemic in Victoria and East London. Uh, prostitution is rife. And these are scenes that kind of shock Attlee. And and this is what really drives him into into socialism. I say in the book, he matures into socialism. But it's from that starting point that if Britain is the greatest country on the earth, that is actually exporting its ideas of the rule of law and liberty and citizenship to these other places on the earth, how can it be that the very core of its nation— at the very core of the imperial metropolis, you have circumstances and conditions that are just so disgusting and shaming. And that really is, it, it, as I say, it's patriotism that prompts Attlee to say, this is not good enough, something's gone wrong. And that starts his conversion and, and his march into socialism.
0: One of the things that stands out in your depiction of it and in and, and your description here as well is the degree to which it was a shock. And it speaks to how uh, sheltered his upbringing was, he has this very comfortable existence to the point where it, it, when he sees it, which is, you know, which predates his, you know, his birth, you know, the, the, the existence of these in London, as you point out, Dickens wrote about it. And of course it goes back, you know, many centuries before that, but the idea of, 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 it's almost like for the first time he's he realizes this is how the other half lives and 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 how how it really does seem to be a a, a shock for him in a way that had he had more prior exposure it, it may it may not have
1: yeah i mean he it shows the extent to which he lives this sort of perfect idyllic childhood and he really describes this idyllic childhood of you know cricket games and tennis games and um, this beautiful area south west London, that not much of us can afford to live these days um, but, but you know he, he he you know is very much a product of that environment, and the greatest hardship are the kind of the 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 public schools which windswept quads and and uh, cold baths and all these type of things but actually you know while he 's shocked, something else happens that when he 's in this area within this slum area and it 's a different response than a lot of other Victorians. Because there is what's known in in England, there are periodic um, um, sort of emotional and moral crises about what's known as the condition of England question, this poverty right at the center of the imperial metropolis. Others have been beforehand and others have established um, religious missions, uh, schools are focused on training up and good character. At response is somewhat different and it's, it really goes to the heart and it's, it's a clue to understanding him because he's not really into charity as a thing. He thinks it's slightly patronizing. And neither is he into Moral, uh, moral reformation either. So he doesn't support the temperance movement, those who would take sort of alcohol away from the working man or anything like that. Atlee's actually not sort of, he, he's saddened and shocked, but he's, he's impressed and he's impressed by the kind of fiber and the toughness and the camaraderie and the solidarity of those in those working areas. You know, young boys who help each other as orphans, Families to support um, others when the men are out of work. So he's absolutely touched and impressed. And I think he says that charity is a cold, grey thing. And actually, you know, he believes in something else, which is, you know, these these people, you know, are the the living embodiment of what later socialists called solidarity. And really, that is the the core to to Atlee. He's not an individualist. Um, That you know, that makes him differ from a lot of Victorians. It's not about one's relationship with God or one's relationship with drink. It's about a community, and 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 that's something he really does appreciate from his early days.
0: It seems that idea, uh, which you know, that that respect he has for them, is also part of the key to his success going forward. in, In that he doesn't condescend to them. He doesn't treat them as. As a thing that needs to be saved, but he deals with them as human beings, and 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 I think that also shows through in a lot of his in in his in his political career as well in terms of his uh, especially his electoral appeal.
1: Yeah, it's an odd thing for a, for a shy guy because he is chronically shy, and it's partly kind of going into this world that slightly cures his 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 shyness, but he still has his shyness with him. Um, you know, for the rest of his life, and I think you know you captured it very well. He has a certain ability to, as one someone famously said, to go to go about his business just like the sort of man who would vote for Mister Attlee. You know, he, he he can appeal a kind of simple, basic level of humanity without being pious or preachy or over earnest. And it's kind of an unquantifiable thing that actually it goes very far in British politics. British politicians, you know, who are are more preachy or earnest, like William Gladstone in in Attlee's Age, um, sort of slightly infuriate British. And Attlee has this ability, when he's talking to those in these working class areas, not to seem like a gentleman interloper. Not to seem like someone who's turned up for a few years to forward his political career, and part of that's that's about longevity. And one of the you know the things that occurred to me over the course of, of writing the book, it's not until his his mid 60s that he becomes the prime minister. Um, and, and political careers these days are short and fast and brutish and nasty. Again, to borrow a phrase from elsewhere, Atlee's a man who, you know, by 1918 has spent, you know, uh, more than a decade in, you know, or so by the time the, the First World War begins. Um, Almost a decade in the east East end of London, slowly building up his reputation, you know, standing in street corners and preaching to nobody about socialism, um, getting sort of 30 votes in local municipal elections. But he's there. He's helping people. He's on their level. There's nothing patronizing about them. He doesn't look down at their lives. Um, and what he holds is something which actually becomes crucial to the British socialist movement. It's it's a core belief that that's not local things can't fix this scourge of poverty, and the state at some point is going to have to step in. And that really is what distinguishes
0: his, his political thinking. Mm-hmm. At the same time, though, he doesn't reject his past. He doesn't necessarily embrace the working class and, and put down working, working class errors. You, you mentioned how... He initially was, you know, he was training for a career in the law. He uh, embraces social work, but it's he subsists on the stipend that he receives from his family. So he is living with them, but he is not, you know, living in a tenement. He's not uh, putting on errors in that respect either. Yeah, no, that's actually very true. I mean, he does move into the boys' club in Halebury, um, uh
1: very soon, a year after he, he arrives there. Um, so he is sort of embedded in that area. But he has a generous stipend from his father, and then after his father dies, which which breaks Atlee's heart in many ways, he has um, a, you know a lot of money from his, his father's estate. Um, so he has a certain inbuilt advantage where he can actually. Afford to, um, you know, embed himself in this community. He can't afford to dedicate himself to things like, you know, um, essentially social work, and that's what he is. He's a social worker. Yeah, I mean, so there, there is an element in which, you know, that privileged background gives him the space and the opportunity um and 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 basically avoids the sin of impatience, political impatience, and he's not impatient like that um I think that is an important thing to understand about him. He's still taking relatively exotic holidays to Italy, he travels to the United States, for example um you know these are not the things uh, open to your average labor m p who tended more to be a um you know trade unionist or you know particularly from the north of England as well these are certain certain inbuilt advantages i think which do give him a, a sort of a perspective not available to everyone
0: mm-hmm. and he is working in uh the east End uh, right up to the outbreak of the first world war and how does he transition from uh his social work into military service and 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 what what was his uh career as an officer like yeah i mean it's pretty it's it's in one level
1: distinguished i mean it's pretty impressive when you break down the facts he's carried off the battlefield um three times in the first world war and yet when i hate to say it it, it, it's not sort of obviously heroic so he's hit by friendly fire once he's carried off with a, a tummy sickness a stomach illness uh, at another stage, and he 's hit in the back, I think again by friendly fire, the third time he 's carried off the war, so it 's not so sort of you know famous um story of 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 huge courage, and yet that courage is there uh, and what 's important to understand about him is that you know he as I say, he volunteers after, um, at an age in which he does not have to fight in the front line, he's desperate to fight in the front line. And one reason is that he wants to fight in the front line is because um, many of the boys in the boys' club that he ran have actually gone off to fight. Um, And so, you know, Attlee has trained them in the boys' club to shoot weapons, to march, and to drill. There's a sort of sense of responsibility to what he's done already. Uh, but what's, what's you know, really interesting about the, the Atlee story in the First World War is that his brother, simultaneously, is a conscientious objector. And in fact, his brother is one of a, a very small portion of people who maintain their conscientious objection and who refuse even to help in clerical positions, so not to fight on the front line. There's, there was a kind of a way out offered to those uh, pacifists. His brother goes right the, the full hog, as he says, and his brother's in jail in, um, uh, in Wandsworth back in London at the exact same time that Atlee's in Gallipoli and Mesopotamia leading, leading his regiment, um, his Lancashire regiment. So it's actually a fascinating um, it's fascinating to read the letters between Atlee and his brother. And, and you know, Atlee loves his brother. He admires, admires the bravery of his pacifism. But he thinks he's, you know, for want of a, a better phrase, or for a phrase that Atlee used himself, a bloody fool anything <laughs> if if you know it has to be it has to be broken down into uh, obligation again and you owe your country this obligation. Um you know and pacifism ultimately is not going to get you anywhere in nineteen fourteen to eighteen. Um so he can love and appreciate his pacifist brother. And tolerate and be impressed by his views, while fundamentally disagreeing with him, and and volunteering, going above and beyond the call of duty to go and volunteer. And it's quite a you know fascinating um, you know war record. Let's say he's at he's at Gallipoli, a famous campaign, um, uh, first first of many disasters of Churchill's career. Um and then he moves on to mesopotamia, so he he's um almost hundred years ago, actually in April nineteen sixteen he's shot by friendly flights, uh, fire climbing over the top um and charging a Turkish trench in classic Atli fashion. It turns out the that the um Turkish trench had been emptied the previous day, so he has a sort of glorious march. Uh, lands in the Third uh, Trench and then and he's hit by friendly fire and then um, uh, he you know, travels back through India, recuperates and fights again. becomes major, so he's promoted to major and fights again on the Western Front and he sees scenes of absolute desolation in 1917 and 1918 in separate postings. So, you know, he had a pretty good war to, to use a, a classic uh, British euphemism, um, <laughs> and, that, and un- undoubtedly that you know, image of Major Attlee that emerges after the war gives him a kind of a solidity and, and a kind of a, a respect to his political career that some other socialists might not have had, he regarded as more dangerous or pacifist
0: or unpatriotic. At least patriotism really, you know, shines through his every pore. And it's not something that he necessarily uh, plays up. In fact, you, you mentioned at one point that he, uh, I believe it was when it was uh the, the the Hansard recording, he he insists on not being listed in in Hansard as Major Atley. He just wants to be Atley. Absolutely, yeah. The first time he becomes leader of the Labour Party in
1: 1935, his very first act is to walk up the and house of Parliament to the assorted gallery of um, a, a press man, and he says, "No one calls me Major Attlee anymore. Um, I'm to be Mr Atley from now on." So he doesn't want to play up on on the war record party because he'd lost so many. Uh, friends, and that really did remain, you know, with him till the end of his life. So he's not someone who sort of plays up some a, a sort of glorious patriotic war, war record. I mean, sort of the classic, you know, British capacity for understatement. Um, it's only really as I, as I dug deeper and I, I found some new files in the Imperial War Office and other places that I actually really got a sense of, you know, just how um, uh, impressive his war
0: record record was. When the war ends, he goes back to the East End. And initially, it seems a little desolate. You you describe how he goes back to the 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 boys' uh, school, and it's so many of them have gone off and served. They've had to wind it down. Uh, But then he transitions very uh, quickly into uh, into local politics. Yes,
1: absolutely. So I mean, this is sort of this is quite depressing scene, but over the course of two days. Um, Two things happened. The first thing is he goes back to his former constituency. He sees the boys club is kind of boarded up because so many of the people he'd sort of coached and and trained and looked after over the course of years have gone and died um, for their country in the First World War. Um, then the following day he goes back to the constituency again and he meets a man called Ox- Oscar Toiven, a, uh, a, 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 London Jew, I think of Romanian descent, who's like a local socialist Labour Party fixer. And Toiven has the idea, idea immediately that Attlee has the stuff for a um, a political career, and that he should, um, after standing as mayor of Attlee in the first instance, you know, uh, Toybin has already worked out that he should be the candidate for that constituency, partly because um, Attlee has this war record, and there's a lot of resentment in London in particular against the conscientious objectors who have stones thrown at them and are told they aren't patriots. Attlee really is the first rebuke to that, so the idea that socialists aren't patriotic in Britain um, at least, you know the 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 the
0: immediate obvious counterpoint to that, and thus begins his political career in uh, in East London. And that comes at a very interesting juncture because uh, you have on the one hand that the Labour Party was uh, had, was in in a sense divided by the position on the war. We had Ramsay MacDonald who. Uh, you know, had to basically uh, resign leadership because he was a conscientious objector. He stayed out of it. And yet at the same time, in the post-war environment, labor rises to become initially the, the premier opposition party. And then in 1923, they uh, assume government, for, assume office for the first time, led by Ramsay McDonald. So that image is, 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 is not something that easily goes away. It's, it's, it's interwoven with who the labor party is that, that, that Clement Attlee is, is, is a member of. Right to today, there's always been this sort of tension when it
1: comes to the Labour Party and whether the British public trusts them on matters of national security. Um, and it's playing itself out right out in, in contemporary politics today, where you essentially have a, a, a strongly anti war leader of the current Labour Party. Uh, Ramsay MacDonald is the first casualty of that. But the British people do think Macdonald accepted, um and MacDonald changes his position on foreign policy anyway, the labor, the labor, enough Labour people have a strongly patriotic record and they did do the right thing at the time of the First World War. Um uh, and people like Major Attlee or Clement Attlee as he wanted to be called, um, you know, are, are kind of a living testimony to that, absolutely. Um, I mean, in terms of the rise of the Labour Party after the First World War, something happens which transforms everything, which is people forget that Britain's actually not a fully functioning democracy when it goes into the First World War. There are still plenty of people, casual labourers, people without their own properties who can't show um, rent, um, who don't have the vote. And there's another huge enfranchisement of people uh, in 1918. So Britain is ultimately, finally, a mature democracy after 1918. And what does that mean? It means that a massive portion of the working classes who intuitively or instinctively would sympathize with Labour are enfranchised. So, you know, in the first half of the 20th century, you know, what emerges is a big question as to, you know, when will there be a Labour government, a majority Labour government, because it seems to many like inevitable, and that will be inevitable. But, you know, what will British socialism look like? Um, it seems to be slight, something slightly different from the European continent, when you have a much uh, more extreme form of socialism, much more sympathetic with communism, and and really the, the British Labour Party is is the is the odd man out in the history of 20th century European socialist parties, because it resists communism, um, it also resists kind of um, pacifism. Uh, that it's inclined occasionally to lean towards. And it is people like Attlee who steer it on that course. And without people like Attlee with that record, then Ramsay MacDonald can never kind of build his reputation up again. You know, turns out Ramsay MacDonald plays a very conservative um, uh, sort of approach to maintaining Labour in power, and that really is the key um, to the fact they don't get derailed, they don't collapse, they don't divide, and they don't sort of um,
0: um, chase communism, which so many other European uh, socialist parties did. Mm-hmm. And Attlee was there as part of it. You, uh, he, at one point, he was uh, McDonald's uh, uh, PPS. He is there, but he is a young, younger member in a party with a lot of people in the 1920s. And you, you describe how it, it's difficult for him to get into office, and then right when he achieves office, uh, in, in, uh, in, in 1930, 1931, the uh, labor uh, government that's elected at that time uh, tears itself apart because of the Depression. Yeah, Attlee is not regarded as a
1: rising star. And that's something that, again, you can only have a career like Attlee's if you're a survivor. And you have longevity and his closest ally, um, Jack Lawson, a another person with a great war record who was a uh, northeast of Durham, a county Durham uh, minor miners' representative, describes Atley as having the type of solid integrity that in time grows into massiveness. But no one can see this in the 1920s. And the, the story of the book in the 20s is this stuttering career, um, lots of family difficulties. His wife suffers um what looks to be postnatal depression a number of times. Um, it's quite a tough job being an MP and trying to, you know, maintain maintain a house um, a household and, and, and at least the money from his father begins to run out. Um he seems to be going nowhere really. He's sent by Ramsay Macdonald to India as part of the Simon Commission um, which is to basically look at the conditions for uh, India and see if it's approaching self-governance, which is what the British always promised the Indians, but never delivered self-governance from the, from, from the empire. And Atlee goes to India, but he's kind of dispensable in the political firmament. And just as soon as he gets his foot in the door with a number of uh, two minor posts in the in the government uh, in, in, in Ramsay MacDonald's second government. Um, The uh, Wall Street crash happens and we all know what happens there Um, and what Ramsay MacDonald does is is betray the Labour Party and forms a national government with a huge national government um, with a lot of conservative and liberal support and divides the Labour Party right down the middle and in 1931 the Labour Party almost looks finished after having seemingly been the party that was going to take control uh, had inevitably it has you know had a history on its side and the working classes in its support looks divided and almost finished broken down to 41 MPs which is barely anything. Um, luckily for Attlee, he is one of those, um, those those MPs and it's almost by a stroke of luck that so many other people lose their seats, but Attlee keeps his uh, in the early 1930s that the, his his
0: career starts to build slowly towards this leadership position. You mentioned that not uh, it wasn't just the the uh, number of of Labour MPs who lost in the election of 1931 that followed, but it was in particular the leaders, uh, people like uh, Henderson, uh, rising stars like Herbert Morrison. They were temporarily uh, out of Parliament, and so you had this vacuum in which you had Attlee and one or two others, such as Lansbury and 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 and, Green, uh, who, and Greenwood, who uh, now suddenly were what was on offer until you get more people able to uh, get back into parliament absolutely i mean to say it's a wipeout is to understate it you know all the rising stars
1: everyone who'd been ahead of atley in the pecking order uh, young and new or you know young and old um who seem you know whether they're the grand old men of the labor party or you know younger guns earmarked for greatness are knocked out Um, in in the context of the Great Depression and that gives Atlee a kind of a head start but it's not just luck and I think I would criticize those who said Atlee was always constantly lucky because many of those who said he was lucky were jealous and annoyed um, and there were those, you know, and, and it's in the diaries and the letters of his rivals that they say, oh, this little, little this little man, we're not impressed by this little man. But the course that Attlee plays over the course of the 1930s, the, the role and, the, and the, 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 the way he does politics is actually pretty crucial to the British story. So if you think that Britain has a, a kind of a national emergency government after the Great Depression, that's very unusual in the British context. And in fact, it sounds like something that would happen in continental Europe. Um, And the question is, with this huge majority government, that basically street politics become pretty important. And, you know, there's an obvious problem with that if you're looking at what happened with Mussolini or Hitler or elsewhere. And there are genuine fears in the 1930s that Britain could go that way. It could go to a strongman on the left. It could go to a popular front, which brings the communists in, something that he does not want. On the right, you could go to um, fascism, and of course this is the era in which you have Oswald, Oswald Mosley, who's Britain's foremost fascist. Um, so there's you know, the danger that street politics will take control. There's also a danger that, that big corporate interests like the trade unions or the national executive of the Labour Party will start to take control and take power in their own hands. And what Attlee does very successfully, and he's praised by a lot of conservatives for doing it, including Churchill actually, He keeps the focus of politics in Parliament. And, you know, he is ultimately a parliamentarian. And, you know, in in British history, we kind of forget that we sailed pretty close to the wind as well in the 1930s. We like to have the story of unbroken constitutional politics and steady development. Actually, there's a lot of reason, you you, you know, to believe in the 1930s that Britain could go the way of France or the way, more worryingly, of Germany or Russia or Italy. Um, and, you know, it, it's because of men like Attlee who respect Parliament, even when they're not getting their own way. who turn up all the time, speak at all the events, sit in all the committees. Um, you know, those guys basically keep Britain on a certain steady track, which becomes very important by the time the, the Second World War breaks mm-hmm. out.
0: Uh, and yet, even though he is the leader of the Labour Party, uh, he's elected as, in 1935, the expectation among so many of these people, especially the ones who are are so dismissive of him, is that it's a temporary appointment and, or, and that in maybe after, say, another general election or so, then somebody like, say, Dalton, Hugh Dalton or, or Herbert Morrison will uh, step up and, and, and assume the post from from Attlee that he's that even though he's doing all these things in the 1930s, which are. Uh, uh, which are critically important and appreciated. The, there is a sense that he is simply uh, a placeholder, while the the the, the rising stars, uh, you know, can resume their ascent. Exactly, and he, you know, he has a certain interest in letting them all think that. I mean, like what
1: I, I think I can cover in the book is there's a little bit more burning ambition in Atlee than sometimes people people at the time as a mist um, but, you know, that's what he says. I'm just a caretaker. I'm not um, someone who, you know, wants power or glory I say he's a poor speaker. He seems like an odd fit in an era of demagogues and platform politics and mass media and propaganda and all these things that are, you know, really sort kind of getting going at the time. And at least seems sort of you know a steady pair of hands waiting for other brilliant people to come in. Um, you know, but that sort of does two things. One is for those who are kind of suspicious of great men, and there's good reasons to be suspicious of great men, kind of at least seems quite reassuring and appealing. And secondly, even this is even more the case when Those other so-called brilliant people who all have a strong sense of themselves from Herbert Morrison through Stafford Cripps and Hugh Dalton, unquestionably really brilliant thinkers, they all put people off by presuming that they are, you know, the heir to the throne. Uh, And, you know, when it comes to a simple election of Labour Party MPs, um, Attlee wins and he beats them all. And it's the thing they can never... um, quite fathom and it's a narrative that they continue and constant threats to his leadership constant carping and criticism from the outside the fact is um when it comes to labor party elections he wins them and also you know i think the historical record shows that when it comes to it appealing to a broad um, um portion of the british electorate at least record is pretty phenomenal so there's something that leads people to underestimate it. And yet, there's sometimes, at the same time, there's something quite appealing in that, the lack of arrogance, uh, the lack of self-regard, the shyness, uh, and the oppression of decency and solidity. And I think that you know, does come into
0: its own at difficult times in British history. And yet you don't make that the sole source of his success. You point to his political ability. And I thought that really came out well when you were talking about appeasement and the run up to the Second World War, that he is having to navigate a a very uh, difficult environment, not just in terms of the popular, you know, the national opinion, but also within his own party. And and which and oftentimes he's forced to take positions or, or, or approach problems from a from a standpoint that you make clear, he doesn't always agree with himself in, in terms of, say, questions of rearmament, questions of how to deal with uh, the rise of Adolf Hitler, and so forth.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you assess his record over the long durée of the 1930s, he, he's not an appeaser. Um, he becomes a strong anti-appeaser, but his record on foreign policy is actually a little bit incoherent and self-contradictory. So on the one hand, he's a, he's a League of Nations man, he really um, believes in and, and, uh, 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 League of Nations sanctions. On the flip side, he doesn't support rearmament. So it's basically someone who's talking about, you know, the carrot and the stick. They're, they're happy to shake the big stick, but, you know, the British stick is getting smaller and smaller, and Attlee doesn't quite bite the bullet, and, and the Labour Party takes a long time to support rearmament. So there's a certain incoherence. Uh, and it frustrates those he's criticising, so if you're Neville Chamberlain or those in the government, you're saying, you know, you guys, your sums don't add up. You know, the, your position doesn't actually make sense, and, you know, unquestionably, Atlee is playing politics and managing expectations in his party. The Labour Party, not for the first time, not for the last time, is divided on uh, issues of foreign policy. doesn't quite know what to do about Soviet Russia and Nazi Germany. There's a lot of sympathy for Germany in the first instance. Uh, which then turns into horror very quickly. So there's a kind of an inconsistency to his uh, foreign policy. The one hand, you could say, you know, yeah. expose him and criticise him for that, and I, I do do that in the book. On the flip side, it does, you know, speak to a greater kind of political astuteness, where he does not want the Labour Party to be divided on foreign policy, and he thinks the crucial thing is to keep it together um, until that moment where government becomes pos- possible, it becomes possible w- to win an election. Um, you know, and, and first-hand, Atley does that sort of slightly cack-handedly or clumsily, But he grows into his stride over the second uh, half of the 1930s. And the the big example of this is the Spanish Civil War, which he kind of makes a cause with which to rally the Labour Party around. And he criticizes the policy of non-intervention on the grounds that the um, Republican side, the legitimate Democratic side in the Spanish Civil War, of course made famous by Hemingway and Orwell and others who went to fight alongside by them, them you know haven't got the support of you know for want of a better phrase, the Western nations, the democratic nations, whereas despite this apparent rule of non-intervention, the Francoists and the fascists have got the support of the Germans and the Italians, the two fascist states. And Ali, basically, this is the moment at which the kind of, the at least, vision on foreign policy becomes more clear and directed. And he basically, he divides the world into... Uh, uh, not left and right and this is why he differs from a lot of Labour Party it doesn't matter where you stand on the socio-economic perspective or economic issues he divides a lot the world between totalitarians and democrats and I think that really goes to the, whole, the, the core of what, what Attlee is
0: and why eventually by 1940 he's happy to get into bed with Churchill and join the government mm-hmm. And yet he does it in a very democratic way, as you described. He uh he doesn't join the 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 cabinet at the start of the war, but when and when the but when the opportunity presents itself in May of nineteen forty, he doesn't automatically make the decision. He goes back to uh the 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 Labour leadership and, and gets their consent before he says that yes, this is something that we will agree to do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He goes to the Labour Party conference,
1: it's a pretty dramatic scene. The Labour Party conference is taking place in Bournemouth. Um, they was uh, a small seaside town in the south of England. Attlee is traveling back and forth from there, having negotiations with the government. Um, Chamberlain is about to fall because um, his policy is in tatters and the British clearly are not ready to fight the war. Um, The phony phase of the war is it's anything. Well, it's it's coming to an end uh, and there's basically a recognition that the British, you know, their planning has been disastrous. Uh, The whole policy of appeasement isn't, you know, absolutely ruined. Uh, And the question is, will Labour join a coalition government, a newly constituted coalition government? Uh, it's not quite clear who will be at the head of that government. By the way, there are two options. One is Lord Halifax. The other one is Churchill. And many people think that Halifax is, is ahead of the curve on this, um, and, and the more likely candidate. But basically, you know, they're asked by the government, the Labour Party, to join a new national government for the sole purpose. Of fighting the war to a successful end, and Adley has to go to the Labour Party and convince them of that. And you know, while there's a vast majority of Labour delegates, you know, voting for, there's still quite a few in the hall who are either Soviet sympathisers or pacifists. Um, and ironically, given they're pacifists, there are scuffles that break out um, in the back of the conference hall. <laughs> so um, you know, it's kind of Britain's great patriotic moment in 1940, and yet you know, the, the reality is a little bit more tense and difficult. Mm-hmm.
0: But he does. Uh... Received the assent of the party and he agrees to serve and that's critical to Churchill uh, becoming the prime minister and Attlee then becomes a member of the government. I was wondering if you could explain a bit uh, what role he played during the war, the the role he played helping uh, Churchill, his relationship with Churchill, and also the role he played in, in the government during the war. Yeah. So first of all, Atley
1: is Lord Privy Seal, which is kind of one of those brilliantly, ridiculously arcane um, British um, uh, uh, um, sort of places places of government. And what it really means is it is the government's fixer and the government's glue. So we do a lot of process work that falls beyond Churchill's immediate purview in terms of organizing things so getting bicycles sorted for the home front uh, in the event of fear of an invasion uh, air raid shelters all that type of things and he has this fantastically 1940s british routine in the early stages of the war where he goes to the oxford and cambridge club of course Hattley's an oxford man um has his breakfast every morning uh returns to the treasury and 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 deals with um you know paperwork really his other job is to keep the Labour Party content in the coalition. And there's a bit of worry about that because, you know, British politics had got pretty bitter in the 1930s. And having the Conservatives and the Labour Party in the same government, um, you know, caused a lot of issues, a lot of tensions, There's a lot of bigger, big personalities, much bigger than Attlee, who are clashing pretty regularly. So that's the kind of first job. And then after various clashes and uh, cabinet reshuffles, um, Atley becomes, actually, officially Deputy Prime Minister to Churchill in 1942 and uh, to the rest of the war. And he is an absolutely critical deputy to Churchill. There's so much written about the Second World War and there's so much written about Churchill that I was worried when I started, you know, researching this book that I wouldn't have anything new to say. Um, and I hope I haven't fallen into the classic um, trap of the biographer and, and seeing everything, every event through, you know, the event, the eyes of my subject. But actually, Attlee is pretty critical in a number of ways to the politics of the British war effort. Um, and above all, he has this extremely close relationship with Churchill. I don't think anyone could match in the government, even the sycophants around Churchill. Um, because uh, And it goes right back to the First World War. Uh, I mentioned Gallipoli already, the campaign um, in the Dardanelles, that, um, that this Churchill's strategic uh, idea turns out to be an absolute disaster. It's one of the great tragedies of the First World War. Um, Atlee fights in Gallipoli, so you'd think that he would be suspicious of Churchill. And yet, something is very important in this story, which is that Atlee thought that, Ch- that Gallipoli campaign in the First World War was strategically sound. It was the right idea, but it had been marred by bad generalship. It was the generals on the ground who had no idea when it came to the prosecution of war. And that was a big socialist narrative of, of part of the First World War. You know, the, 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 the working men who armed, you know, who fought the battles were the heroes and the generals who sat behind the front lines were idiots. And Gallipoli kind of confirmed that for Atlee. So fast forward to the Second World War, and you have this situation in which Churchill is a, you know, he's a pretty in- inconsistent and a, you know, wild strategist. You know, we regard him as a kind of a strategic genius. For the most part, the generals were terrified by all these new ideas. And at, the, at these crucial early phases of the war, particularly 40 up to the end of 42, when things are going terribly for Britain, it looks like Britain's going to lose the war. Churchill's political star has fallen out of the sky. Um, it's the worst phase of the war. And Attlee is the one who sticks beside him on a number of crucial issues. And he backs Ch- uh, Churchill against the generals at various portions. So the general view of Attlee is he kind of, he's a hopeless strategist. He was two um, you know, in tow to Churchill. And, but that comes from the diaries of the, of the key generals, like General Allenbrook, who kind of see um Attlee frustrating them as they try, and, they try and railroad Churchill into a different position. So if you think that Churchill, by and large, did turn out to be a good strategist, was vindicated, ultimately, by the end of the war, then Attlee's the one who sticks with him through the dark times. And interestingly, funny enough, when the whole the whole apparatus of government swings behind Winston from, from 43, 44, 45, he seems untouchable, everyone realizes he was a genius, that's the moment in which Attlee starts criticizing him more. So it's a kind of an odd thing where she sticks with, you know, the great hero of the British war effort very closely when times are dark. And then when all his sycophants come back and, and start, you know, looking for scraps of patronage around the feet of Churchill, least the one who says, no, Winston, you're wrong on this. Um, and I think, a, you know, there's a deep integrity, but it's very important to the sort of political balance of the cabinet during the war.
0: Mm-hmm. And he also... Atlee seems to be also much more aware of the shifting mood in the in the nation as a whole. That uh, as the war, as you're seeing the war coming to an end in, in, in 44 and early in 45, you're you're seeing the, the the beverage report. You're seeing the the you know the renewed sense that after this war there there will be a better Britain for the the men to return home to, and 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 Atlee is in, in some ways the benef- is in many ways the beneficiary of this of the shifting mood. There's a, there's a revolution in British public opinion relating to politics in
1: the Second World War, and no one sees the coming tide, the extent to which um, you know that revolution has transformed everything. And it's a kind of a legacy of things that Atlee's been been fighting for, but it doesn't fall easily into the bracket of left or right. Um, and it comes from the fact that Britain, in a way that it's, it's very hard to appreciate, I think, in, in the U.S. Um, um, because of the greater wealth and freedom of maneuver, Britain bankrupts itself and transforms itself in the name of fighting the Second World War. After the end of the First World War, pretty much bankrupts itself there. It tries to go back to a former state of affairs, and you have the twenties and the thirties and the horrible tales of mass uh, unemployment and. Uh, lack of support from the state when it comes to social welfare and all these things. Basically, the mood in Britain in the Second World War when it comes to domestic politics is never again. And there's a huge left word. I I said it's not a matter of left left and right, actually, and I I stick to that, so let me correct myself. There's a huge shift in support of things like social insurance, uh, a national health service, Uh, basically uh, an idea that the state which has asked citizens to sacrifice itself again in another epic war Sacrifice families and the children of the people who got nothing from the First World War. This time it's got to be different. This time it's got to be different when the when the peace eventually comes. So there's a, there's a, there's a very un-British revolutionary mood, and the expectation is the state has to deliver upon promises it made to its people as a course of the war. And those promises included not only a war on Nazism but a war on poverty as well. And Brit- the British government declares a war on poverty and says, you know, you will never go back to these conditions. We are fighting for a new Jerusalem. So, you know, the language of war is applied domestically when it comes to socio-economic issues. And also there's a kind of almost a millenarian, uh, a quasi-religious field fe- to the promises made to the British people, because it really is Britain's darkest hour, um, you know, with the bombing campaigns, the blitz, the loss of so many people. And the expectation is, well, okay, now something big is coming. The British government is going to transform itself um and, and Attlee is the beneficiary of that because he's seen as the man to usher in the revolution because you get to may nineteen uh, uh, may june nineteen forty five churchill to the world seems preeminent you know he's a he's a he's a master diplomat, a master strategist they managed to preserve Britain brought America into the war. Um is respected by Stalin, of course, with whom he has a very um functioning relationship as well as Roosevelt, and thereafter less so Truman. Um, you know Churchill seems preeminent, and yet what happens is he's absolutely junked and thrown out of office unceremoniously by the British electorate. You still love him to pieces. You know, the fondness for Churchill is, is huge, but there's a real sense in that, that election which comes at the end of the war between the declaration of surrender by the Germany and the declaration of surrender by Japan, by the way. So before the atomic bomb, Uh, The British uh, electorate go to the polls and they give the Labour Party its first majority. It's one of the biggest um, um, votes ever declared uh, for one party. Um, It's a huge, huge victory for Labour. So Attlee inherits, if you like, the victory of Churchill. Um, And everyone's surprised. um,
0: Everyone's shocked. um, But actually, you know, they voted for it. So they shouldn't have been. So shocking, You shocked even Attlee. He was... Uh, you, you describe how he's expecting a uh, a, a larger uh, uh, place in, in in the Commons, but he's still expecting that it will be a conservative majority with Churchill continuing on as Prime Minister. And yet here he is with this this opportunity, and it's one that uh, that that uh, you know even on on the cusp of this historic achievement, there were people within the Labour Party trying to take it away from him. <laughs> Yeah, so
1: absolutely. So all his enemies, even in the flush of victory, can't quite believe exactly who delivered it for them. So they think they would have done but They can't say they would have done better. It's beyond anyone in the Labour Party's wildest dreams, but they see the moment they've all dreamed for, which is this huge majority of Labour government, the Labour Party finally able to do the things it always promised to do, essentially to implement you know, socialist policies. Um, and um, the day that Attlee uh, learns about the election result, he receives a note from Herbert Morrison telling him he's one of his most perennial and irritating rivals, telling him that he's decided uh, to challenge him for the leadership of the Labour Party. And Attlee, in one of his most famous put-downs, who's very good at a sort of one-line put-down, wrote um, back, Dear Herbert, thanks for your letters, the contents, thanks for your letter, the contents of which have been noted <laughs> you know, dear, uh, best wishes, Clem. Um, so he just sort of just blindsides the critics. It turns out they can't. Again, they divide themselves. They can't mobilise enough of a, a response against Attlee. But they even even they are a victory. They try and take the throne off him, uh, and that occurs time and time again. Uh, really incredible act of treachery. The Labour Party is remarkably treacherous in this in this era. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the, the, I think, and again, I make the case in the book: it's impossible to tell because polling figures were so inaccurate and unsophisticated, you know, the whole industry of polling. My own view, and I I think it's borne out anecdotally in in plenty of the accounts I've read, is that Attlee is a big part of that victory. You know, British people are not voting for a radical socialist party. They are voting for the party most likely to usher in the things promised to them during the course of the war. And and they're not voting for some sort of madcap left-wing foreign policy either, They're voting for a certain continuity in foreign policy, and Attlee kind of embodies both of those things. He's steady. He's suburban. He's not going to terrify you if you live in one of the suburban or middle-class swing states in and around London, which really decide British elections. Um, So he's a reassuring figure as compared to his rivals, and I think that's a a big part of the story.
0: Mm -hmm. And one of the things that makes it such a, a fascinating story is that after he has all these various figures like Morrison and and, and, and uh, Dalton you know scheming to to uh, have him uh, overthrown he still incorporates them in, in the cabinet and we in, in America we have uh, that that Doris current's Goodwin book team of rivals which talks about how Lincoln Lincoln had a uh, very fractious cabinet during the Civil War and all these uh Politicians like Salmon Chase and and William Henry Seward, who uh, at one point were were his rivals and who uh, still thought themselves in many ways better than him and even conspired to take, you know, the the presidency away from him in in one way or another. And Attlee had had a very much of of the same situation uh, in terms of having all these these Labor Party, as you put it, the big beasts. Who, uh, even though they've made their desire to supplant Atley very clear, he still brings them into the government, uh, uh, empowers them with important offices, and then lets them uh, run their own shows.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I, 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 I like the, the, the Doris Kern uh, Goodwin book, and, and I think it actually does capture something. Attlee's able to, I mean, the, the British version of Team of Rivals is Ministry of All the Talents. Which sounds like a bad HBO series, um, <laughs> but that's, um, that's, that's what Ali does, and he's able, and he has, you know, in a way, a more egotistic, um, more overconfident or self-confident leader couldn't cope with these people, you know, who are constantly treacherous um, in his cabinet. Ali keeps them close. Um, and not only does that, he's not trying to clip their wings. He lets them use their energies and their talents, and there are undoubtedly some seriously talented politicians of a like, you know, we do not, don't don't do not have today. He he you know he basically allows them to to run free in various uh, ministries. And the, the the great example of that is is Anirin, uh, Nye Nai Bevan, the sort of Welsh firebrand, who has uh, you know abominable positions during the war. I've got to say. Um, there's a kind of written written out of histories. Um, but you know, hugely popular, wonderful speaker, very erudite, um, you know, powerful Welsh accent, but they they always go down very well in British politics. Welsh accents are, are a real asset. I must say that my accent is Northern Irish, which is rather less classy or impressive. Um, but um, but Bevan has this um, this sort of you know deep Welsh accent, ability to galvanise a room and, and and sort of you know have that that quick turn of phrase. And Atlee gives him you know despite all the criticism and the irritation that, that he causes him, gives him the keys to the um, uh, Ministry of Health and says, here's a National Services National Health Service idea. Get on with it and implement it. And the creation of the NHS needs a bevan, needs someone willing to railroad special interest groups, uh, clash with the doctors, etc. So Attlee both manages him at certain points and, and, and says, you know, calm down on nigh at various points. But actually, you know, um, he, he, his, his, his unwillingness to impose his own ego as the kind of identity of his own government means that these, these brilliant people are given space and room to maneuver in their
0: specialist areas. Uh, and, it, you know, it transformed Britain. What does Atlee do as prime minister? I mean, does he take on certain particular issues or responsibilities, or does he just simply uh, focus upon making sure that all the ministers are working in harmony?
1: yes okay so so that's a that's a great question, because there's a lot there's a lot sort of said about this um the the sort of the general impression of Attlee as Prime Minister is that he's a really good chairman, and as I say he allows these people in these different ministries to um push ahead with various things um I just I would say that's broadly true, but I refine it in a number of respects. first of all, he is economically illiterate. Which is probably a little bit unusual for a British Prime Minister of that era. Although Churchill was someone who was also economically illiterate, so in that sense, we you know, were in good company with each other, um, and that was a bit of a delight to me, I must say, because I'm also economically illiterate. So the fact that Atlas <laughs> does not understand—I um, mean, he really talks about, you know, failing to understand um, uh, the the exchange rates, um, imports and exports, um, you know, basically economic planning, all these things—he he basically gives that to the two key economists in the government. One is Stafford Cripps, the next is Hugh Dalton, and says, proceed. He's a, he, I think I describe in the book as an ethos man rather than a process man. Um, but there are a few things that are his kind of special subject. The first is the National Insurance Act of uh, 1946. This goes to the heart of everything that um, Attlee has campaigned for, and really it provides a kind of a safety net of social welfare for those injured at work, um, injured particularly, you know, in, in dangerous factory jobs, um, orphans, you know, those who suffer and have suffered by no fault of their own and no lack of effort. Uh, but have no money to fall back upon. And, and, and national insurance really is at least the, the, the issue that's most close to his heart in the domestic arena, and his government delivers upon promises that he was arguing for as a volunteer social worker in, uh, in the Victorian era. So there's a real sense of circularity and emotional achievement, and when the bill is announced, he takes the unusual step of asking his minister, the social insurance minister, um, if he can deliver the bill. It's an odd moment for Attlee because he doesn't like, you know, grandstanding or, or taking the attention. So that's clearly an issue of huge um, importance to him. That's Britain's New Deal, if you like, and, and he very much, has, you know, has an idea of the New Deal himself. Um, In terms of the other issue that he really interferes on um, uh, and really becomes a special subject, it's foreign policy. It's a huge area of interest to him, uh, and that can be broken down into various component parts. Uh, On the one hand, I've talked already about the empire. Atlee wants to bring independence to India, and it's his own personal investment in that. Um, I mean... The Indian independence movement, you know, is responsible for Indian independence, and they am not taking the agency away from, you know, uh, Indian nationalists. That's really the key to Indian independence. But in terms of a British politician who's emotionally attached and, and drove that forward, no one is of more importance to Ali than that. So I think that's, that's sort of uh, issue number one. Second is that he's so mindful of the collapse of the League of Nations that he really wants to make the United Nations work. Uh, and that manifests itself in, in, in different types of ways. He's very disillusioned in the early years of the Cold War, but he pretty much grasps the nettle that it's not, you know, the West, Britain and America that's, that's really causing the difficulty. It's actually, you know, Soviet Russia that's being more intransigent. And it, it saddens him, but, you know, pretty swiftly he becomes a, a cold uh, warrior. And then the final aspect is the special relationship, so-called Anglo-American relations. You know, Attlee is someone who's, Pretty willing to criticize the United States, but what he fears above all else is an America of the 1920s and 1930s, an America not really engaged in the world. He basically thinks that America, for its faults, and remember he's coming from a left wing perspective, and he does think America has faults it's too corporate, it's too capitalist, um, a bit greedy or selfish, you know, I mean, quite hypocritical for a one-time British imperialist, to say all this, but (laughs) there there you go. Um, He basically thinks America is a force for good in the world, and that leads him to supporting, for example, um, the Korean War very strongly against the advice of a number of people in his government. So, you know, he's a former League of Nations man who... Has learned to appreciate that, you know, if you want a better world, if you want the United Nations, that sometimes you need to be willing to stand up for that, and that really drives a lot of, you know, his attention and his energy. Number of key visits to Washington D.C. I, I talk about in the book, and and really, I, as a biographer, and I did this with the Castlereagh book as well. I I tried to spend the proportion of time on the issues um, in the book that, that were exercising at the Directly, And hence, there's a lot of foreign policy in there because he was less interested in these, you know, the technocratic details of the Attlee government. And there's plenty of great books on the Attlee government, Attlee himself,
0: as they had these special interests and and, and foreign policy is certainly one of them. I think it certainly helped that he uh, got along so well with his foreign secretary, Ernest Bevan, who was a titanic figure in his own right and yet had a fantastic working relationship with Attlee. That's a, a, the, the most important relationship is that between Ernie, Ernest bevan
1: and um not to be confused with Anna and Nye, Bevan often a mistake made by uh, undergraduates or, uh, or 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 school students um so ernie bevan is at least you know as at least greatest ally and he has been for a number of years um he's a famous um uh, trade union organizer pretty robust tough socialist um orphaned, uh, um, uh, went to work in the docks, age 14, um, big, bold, beer-drinking type Type of... I mean, he's a big hunk of a man as well. He really is pretty <laughs> big step. And uh, that, lead, that, that leads to serious health problems as well. Um, you know, ferocious um, uh, cold warrior as well. But, you know, a, a trade unionist, less at 14, self-taught... Pretty sophisticated about world affairs, if not often speaking in a sophisticated fashion. Very pro-American, very attached into uh, sort of New Deal networks and positions. Um, so this is an odd beast that Attlee has beside him, and he says of, of Bevin, "If you have a good dog, uh, if you have a, a, a good dog, sorry, um, uh, just let him bark." And that's his view, you know, of Bevan, who's really, really to go perhaps too aggressive, and many Americans in the administration are sort of worried that Bevan's going to cause another um, cold war. He's too aggressive with the Soviets. Uh, but this kind of core relationship means that Britain does, you know, chart an Atlanticist, um, almost a Churchillian path, even
0: after Churchill. You mentioned uh, Bevan's health, and that's one of the uh, perennial. Uh points you keep returning to during your description of his premiership, which is how so many of these labor figures are, are ailing, and, and, and near the end of uh, the, the government, they're, they're, they're dropping like flies. Bevin, uh, Cripps, uh, Attlee keeps having to go to uh, various uh, clinics to recuperate, because in many ways, they've been in office, uh, in various offices, dating back to 1940, so that by 1950, 1951, they, they, they seem so physically exhausted. Yeah,
1: I mean, the, the mid, the age of the um, cabinet, when it's formed in 1945, in the mid-60s, and they start dropping pretty quickly. Cripps has stomach cancer. Dalton um, basically is sort of falling asleep in meetings. Uh, Benna, not helped by the drinking himself, is also falling asleep in meetings, including um, famously said to be drunk in a meeting in which Britain decides to build an independent nuclear deterrent. <laughs> so all the um, all, all the crucial meetings are taken after a, 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 a sort of a liquid lunch. Uh, you know, Atlee at various stages his knees are so sore he can't get up from downstairs. His sort of wiry, skinny frame gives him an, a surprising advantage um, at various points. And he seems, you know, even the fact he's he has got these war injuries, etc., uh, means that while his knees are going, his mind stays quite uh, sharp. Um, but, yeah, all these ministers start to get absolutely exhausted. Um, they can't work. I mean, the, the amount of business, by the way, is is, is huge uh, after 1945. Um, all the foreign policy stuff on, on the horizon, um, you know, to deal with all the war issues. Then there's the empire. Then there's the transformation of the whole basis of British politics. There's more legislation put on by that government than any before it. So the sheer volume of work is, you know, um, forbidding, and added to that, health problems. Uh, these men who've been up all every night through the war, um, you know, having pretty critical, uh, crucial roles, they start to get, you know, grandadised. Really, and it starts to affect the government very much. So one of the things that, you know, that happens to the government, they run out of steam. And in my estimation, it's almost by 1947, 48. So only halfway through his government that Atlee's starting to think, you know, we've done all the things we we wanted, you know, at a great pace. Let's consolidate. Let's slow down. And some of the younger bucks are, are, are saying, no, not fast enough. We need to do more. We need to do more. Uh, and that becomes a sort of a, a serious tension. That that first generation, those key figures who'd risen um, with the Labour Party, Labour Party's only founded in 1900, and those who were there, present at the Croatian, again, I keep on stealing great American phrases, but those who are <laughs> present uh, at the Croatian, you know, they see it out and they see their triumph in a 50-year portion of history. But by 1950, 1951, you know, their lives are coming to an end as well. And that is a, that's a, a massive part of the story. Absolutely.
0: And, and one of the things that uh, Attlee uh, continues on as, as labor leader till 1955, and, and you describe how, at, you know, as the end is, is coming for him to uh, depart, how uh, so many people don't want to see him go and how even some of his uh, former adversaries like, like Dalton are, 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 are realizing just, You know, finally, for them, for some of them, just what he brought to the uh, to the party, what he brought to the nation, how unique he was and how the Labour Party was really going to be in, in, you know, under very different circumstances once they they had no longer had the benefit of his of his the appeal of his uh, leadership.
1: It's kind of oddly like a sort of aging dictator, although Atlee not, was nothing of a of, of sort. But yeah, the worry really is by 1955 that if Atlee goes, the grand old man goes, the lid will be blown off the top of the Labour Party, which there's new emerging divisions um, between a left and a right-wing faction that are getting incredibly bitter, and they never really break out under Atlee. So there's a kind of an appreciation of that, that you know no one else can kind of keep the lid on. Um, you know there's no real successor the next factor is that many of those rivals have either died or look so decrepit and and, and you know <laughs> the history, his, history has passed them by and they're clearly not the future not the answer and the great example is herbert morrison and some people say that Lee keeps going until 1955 just to keep herbert out um you know um so, so there's an element of that and the third factor is electoral appeal. It becomes very obvious now, um, you know, at a later date, that even when Attlee, even when the government have all sorts of difficulties and problems and internal divisions and economic issues, that the, the, the decency uh, uh, of Attlee and the fondness with which he is held, in which he is held by the British people, um, actually give the Labour Party a massive advantage that they hadn't quite appreciated earlier on. And then, uh, you know, I start to say by, by 1955, when I'm looking back at his electoral record, no one comes near it as a British Labour leader. The one exception is is Tony Blair later on in very different circumstances. And suddenly, if you, if you read back on Atlee's record, you, you start to see you know, right from the moment he's leader in 1935 all the way through that Labour is making incremental gains, um, you know, as soon as he becomes leader. And, and, and also, you know, um, he, he leads it to his greatest ever result. So I think that's, that's, a, that's a huge part of the story. And there's a, there's a slow recognition that this uh, little rabbit, as they call him, you know, actually is more talented and more effective than people have been, real, people have been realizing.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
1: Uh, I'm taking a break because I've got a baby on the way, so that's all that really matters. now. congratulations! Um, been,
0: <laughs> uh, thank you very
1: much. My uh, my wife's family, me from writing another book because that was two and two years, and that uh, it's uh, it's pretty tough. So um, I'm going to think long and hard before I, I choose the next project.
0: Okay. Well, in the meantime, I, I hope this current project gets a great deal of attention. Uh, uh, Citizen Clem, which is now out in the UK, and uh, as uh, you, you've explained, it's coming out in the uh, United States in uh, March of 2017. Uh, what will be the uh, title of the American edition?
1: It's uh, the man who made, uh, Clement Attlee, the man who made modern Britain. I'm hoping it will um, uh, have a, some, some, striking, some sort of resonance. Um, it's, it, it, the reception here has been, been really good so far. and In fact, it's been through uh, three editions already in the course of a month. Um so obviously, at some level, people are longing for a, a Clement Attlee type figure. And I don't know if the U.S. presidential election will make um,
0: people <laughs> long for a certain type <laughs> of old politician who we may have lost today. Uh, well, well, John you thank you very much. And I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you, Mark. Cheers.